Welcome to the Beers podcast, Violin Stories. This is a series about the violin and its siblings, the viola and cello, and those who play them. My name is Simon Morris, and in each episode, I or one of my colleagues will interview an exceptional person from the world of string playing, be they a virtuoso, a collector, philanthropist, or violin maker. Today, I'd like to introduce two virtuoso violinists. Richard Tonietti, who's music director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, and Satu Vanska, who is their principal violin. I'm speaking from Cornwall, England, and Richard and Satu are speaking to me from just outside Sydney in the spider-infested suburb of Manly. Actually, jokes aside, when Ellie and I came to your place for dinner, there was, <laughs> there was an enormous huntsman spider crawling halfway up the wall, and um, Ellie's um, still traumatised, I think. And we had to vacuum it. Well, I think you vacuumed it and you used a surfboard against it, but um, I think it's still one. Yeah, so. um, anyway, I just, what the first thought was really, what, what is it like to be um, locked down in Australia? I guess um, it's been a long time. The middle of the 19th century was the last time people were in Australia and not allowed to leave. <laughs> but you seem busy as ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so how, how are you spending your time? Well, for a start, Simon, may I say you sound like very much like a an experienced expert BBC <laughs> interviewer. So me, you might have a second career. We're looking for second careers, of course. A lot of performing artists are, as you're aware. Lockdown here, if you walk outside, we live in Manly Beach, which is the Cornwall of Australia, jokes aside on that, although we are very close to the sea, like you are, Simon. Uh when we walk outside, there's little sign of maybe we had a, a few days, maybe four days of real panic as the that curve was, was starting to take off. But as you know from the news, we've been very successful in flattening that curve. But because you, you, you have a much more kind of imaginative, I, I, I think, program, musical program than some orchestras and both of you are far more than just virtuoso violinists. So, because Sato, you know, you, you, you sing, and I've heard you quite a few times, and you did that fantastic show with Barry Humphreys, Weimar Cabaret, I mean, you led from the violin and, and sang, and um, you, you seem to love performing regardless of what you're doing on stage. But is that, what is it about performing on stage? Is, is, it, the, is it the performing, is it the music, or is it the violin that, drives you the most can you separate them yeah well not really and i think that this whole situation has also shown that um we as a collective a little bit maybe ahead of other usual orchestras as you say um because we have such a varied um varied range of repertoire and we've also, we've already in our lives we've played all these movie. Um, we've made movies. we've made movies. We've made Mountain. We've made the Reef. We're familiar in playing with a click track, and still make it seem exciting and not not like this, you know, click track. We all know what it's like sitting in a studio and doing a click, you know, playing to a click track. That's that that doesn't cut it for us. But but we're all familiar with that kind of technology and playing with this 
different uh, 21st century sort of demands of how to be a modern musician. So in that sense, you know, being a singer or playing the violin, also it all feels quite natural. But yes, I do start to appreciate how much simpler it is to just get on stage and sure. and perform <laughs> compared to all of all of this that, that actually delivering a whole production, a whole product, you know, that is being produced with all the edits and different components of of filming and recording. Um, that is, as Richard was talking earlier, it's a lot more. Sure. And, and Richard, because, again, you, you're not just playing the violin all the time, you, you do a lot of composition and, and scene, reef and mountain, your compositions, they're, they're very atmospheric and they're, they're they're pretty unusual, actually, because they don't use classical chord progressions. And what would you say your influences are in in composing? Oh, goodness. From anywhere from Ligeti through to, um, through to grunge, electronica, Aphex Twin, Square Pusher, um, uh, Punk, well, Beethoven, of course, and you know, but and and then of course one can't help but use Baroque sequences. Um, but you, yeah, talking about Reef, which was a um, a, a feature length exploration of where the desert meets the western part of Australia, the Indian Ocean. Uh, it was an exploration of not just surfing, but of geography. And so I was trying to find atmosphere in music that marries with um, marries with the visuals, but not in the usual way that you find with with a a film. But rather that you you allow the trick is knowing the how synesthesia works. So you can easily get overload, sensory overload, if you've got music, you know, really good music or powerful music. And it's not just my music that we use in these films, so I'm able to say really good music because we also use Beethoven, and Bach and Ligeti and so forth. <coughs> that when you've got really powerful music, you've got to make sure that the images allow space for the ear to concentrate on the music and vice versa. And so when the vice versa comes in, um, that's when I feel I've got the ability to control the sonic space um, with my compositions. So, but my influences, like most modern musicians, are, you know, we're, we're bowerbirds. I think actually Stravinsky started off. And was it doing the music for Master and Commander that music. got you interested, or had you done music for film before that? Uh, no, I hadn't. I hadn't done music. So was that the thing that really kicked you off? My first film was a was a major Hollywood film, which was certainly certainly being thrown in the deep end. Uh, the the films that came after were were, were bespoke films that we commissioned. So it was driven by an idea. It was driven by the concept of something. So I wasn't a gun for hire. I've done some gun for hire things since, and it's, it's as any film composer will attest to, it's a nightmare experience because you're at the mercy of a film that you don't even know because it hasn't been made. 
and a director, most of whom have absolutely no idea about music, but they, in quotation marks, know what they like or don't like. Um, and things shift all the time. So it's an absolute nightmare. But you, it's the best way to cut your teeth and to learn your craft is to work with a really ruthless director who knows nothing about music. Um, and so now I'm in the fortunate position where we, you know, create the, the movies such as as Mountain. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm, I, I don't listen to what a director has to say or work in synergy with the director, but it's a fantastic process. And, of course, it's put us up in good stead to... Um, to cope with this new, and I promised myself I wouldn't use the word strange, this new, um, to be in these uncharted territories of COVID. And how does it start the, um, the creative land. process, if you like? Do you have an idea of the musical soundscape to which the filmmaker then tries to find appropriate images? Or is it very much the other way around? He just makes his film of images and then you put the music to it or is it a combination if it's a bespoke film um there are many ways to answer this so if it's a a feature a proper feature and you're working as a gun for hire you hope to hell that the director he she it they everything in between uh that they will not be hooked on a piece of music because you end up with an every film composer who you know who's worked on a film knows that if you end up with a temp track the dreaded temp track that the director loves you're in in nightmare land and there are you know many many stories the best one was philip glass being commissioned to write music for a film and the director fell in, you know, had a temp track of Philip Glass and so Philip Glass ended up having to try to copy himself or so the story goes. Now, it might be absolutely correct, but the sentiment is certainly true. And so it's much better to work with a director in, in tandem without that temp track. But directors love working with temp tracks. You know, they love putting ABBA songs to to um, end pretty much anything, jokes. But they'll get hooked on something and getting them off that temp track is a is a Everest climbing feat. But with our bespoke films, sometimes I say this, this piece of music I really want to use. I mean, when we made The Reef, I had Ligeti ramifications and I gave it to um, the cinematographer. So we had a cinematographer and a director and, and he cut this extraordinary piece of, art um including you know filming a garbage dump at the back of uh of a um what you in america call a ranch um and and it was an extraordinary piece of art and it was driven by the music you couldn't change the music of course other times we started off with an idea of something like an alice in chains a grunge band from the 80s uh, a song called Them Bones, and then we built the, the film clip. Other times we started off with a temp track, if you like, maybe Beethoven or something, and then it ended up being original music. But we're, we're in the position, or I'm in the position of being able to, you know, guide the director, which is quite different from the director as auteur. 
Like you do not argue with a director. I mean, if he says they, he, she say, I do not like this piece of music that you've written. You don't say, oh, but it's got you know, beautiful modulations. <laughs> And it's written for, you know, three alto flutes and starts on a minor ninth and it's based on Boulez. They will have no, it's unlikely, highly unlikely. They'll even have reference points that lead them to Beethoven Fifth Symphony, seriously, let alone Vaughan Williams or Debussy. So, you know, therein lies, of course, a, a big problem as well, that they're, they're just not going to understand the musical language. So you just have to say, okay, you don't like it. Is there anything you like about it? And even if they say, I like the melody, it's possible that they don't even really understand what the melodic, melodic fra- um, fabric is. So you really have to I, I, I speak, learn to speak in director's language. Changing direction, Satu, I always think that you epitomise the very international nature of classical music. Could you tell us a little about your life and um, where you've been to and the journey mm. you took from Japan initially to Australia? Yeah, well, so I was born in Japan to Finnish parents who were missionaries, Lutheran missionaries in Japan. My parents loved music almost as much as they loved uh, Jesus and, and religion. And... And obviously, being Lutherans, J.S. Bach is a very important part of of life. So it's not that, you know, happy, clappy religion. Thank God. I always say thank God. That wasn't the case in my in my upbringing. But I grew up in Japan um, in this sort of mid um, near Kyoto and um, countryside. And then I moved to Finland when I was 10 years old. I started to play the violin when I was in Japan and um with the Suzuki method, um, which is, I suppose, also very much of the time. And then I moved to Finland. Uh, our family moved to Finland in 1989. And I was a very lucky recipient of that incredible education system there where a family, a missionary family from from who'd been living in Japan, who've got obviously no wealth of whatsoever, all five children can still get a great education and go to the local conservatorium or music school. I had an excellent violin teacher uh, with a Russian, you know, coming from the Russian school, uh, but a Finnish guy who sadly passed away just a few months ago. And um, and I I was given this opportunity of, you know, which is quite sort of unthought of in today's world that you can just have access like if you just work and you you can have access to this incredible education music education um and and then but having said that i was 10 years old when i moved to finland it was a little bit too late i my heart had been already belonged to the bit more tropical to say put, to put it mildly a bit more tropical climates and finland to have that seven month winter anymore <laughs> well i suppose it's a i would love to go there actually be able to spend the summer in finland once um meaning the northern hemisphere summer and have those white nights um and the lake and the sauna by the lake that would be really beautiful actually that's something that you think about when this whole mess is going on in the world with the covid and and the the fact that you might not never be able to travel again is that where would you like to go? I would say, yeah, I would like to have a summer in Finland. 
but um, but I did go to study. Uh, to back to my story, I went to study in Germany um, around the mid nineties, and and when I was eighteen, and I lived in Munich for about seven years. I got the, you know, I had the continental European German. Uh, influence i suppose which was also very good to have in in your life you know toughens you up and you learn the language but then i very soon started again you know that those sort of more bit more tropical humid climates were always at the back of my mind and somebody recommended me the australian chamber orchestra that it's something that is really a great um ensemble and if if there ever was a job open that I should apply, and and you I tell did. the Weimar story. Come on, this is it. No. Okay, so I thought that, and I was sort of romanticizing Australia back, you know, almost twenty years ago, thinking that oh, going to Australia will be a bit like it will be like the twenties New York or the twenties Berlin, you know, the Weimar, you know, the sort of place where post Spanish Florence. <laughs> yeah, yeah the sort of place where you sort of don't have much tradition and you can be sort of wild and free and not worry about um so free of authority free of authority yeah little did they know what was coming to them in berlin well little did i know that i was moving to one of the most sort of conservative countries in general it's always been in one way australia but 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 i do have to say that in the other hand being in Australia, it makes a lot of sense for somebody whose blood is actually full Finnish to be at the other end of yeah, the world. Yeah, but you end up, the, the beauty, the irony and the beauty of it is that you end up performing in this Weimar Republic. I know, a show, show with Barry. <laughs> you were seeking a sort of Weimar inspiration and you end up performing Weimar. Mm. Yeah, nice I do thing. like the idea of a new continent, to be honest. You know, yes. Sort of the new new place that's got obviously its own thing, but I'm I'm very fascinated by South America and all that. I've never been, but um, you know all these exotic places. Well, I guess we have to touch on the instruments that um, the orchestra has now, which which is fantastic um, collection mm. and, and makes such a difference. How is it? What tangible effects or um, results of, do you do you think it brings to the orchestra having well, in your case, Richard, the, the Guarneri that you play on, and you've got a two strand violins, a wonderful Amati cello, and, yeah. and all, all these things. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, look, I, it was 1996, Simon, and I was coveting. That's what we string instruments, string instrument players do, don't we? We covet. <laughs> I don't think flautists do it, but oh, they've got this. And, and I, we never thought that we'd have access to, you know, great instruments. And I was coveting a Guadagnini, JB Guadagnini instrument that I'd played on in um, Hong Kong. And, um, and Sandra Wagstaff said, take it home. Well, I live in Sydney, Australia. Take it. You've got one month. <laughs> pie, pigs can fly, pie in the sky. So I made a list of a you know top 10 list of corporations because then we were sponsored by a lot of corporations we didn't have that many philanthropists that's the the complete opposite 
And so I, I, high up on the list or first on the list with, was the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And so I contacted them and they said yes, immediately. They said, this looks like a good idea. We'll put it in our fine arts collection. And it made a lot of sense. And it was a good investment for them. They saw it and um, they're now selling it. And hopefully the orchestra, if we survive somehow, and I'm being quite serious about if we survive, uh, even though I, we can sound a bit flippant at the moment, but you poms know about flippancy in the age of uh, struggle. And um, so we, they ended up buying it. And Helena Rathbone, our principal second, now plays on it. And in 2006, the end of 2006, we got a call saying somebody wanted to buy a fine instrument. Um, in fact, they wanted to buy one of the top instruments, thinking, of course, it would be a Stradivarius. And out came the, uh, the Caritas, the 1743 Caritas, and the rest is history with that. Mm -hmm. And then that, in turn, inspired other people, other philanthropists, to buy instruments. Mm -hmm. And then we got, you know, the, the sister cello of the Caritas, um, it being carved by, allegedly, by Del Gesù himself. And then uh, we thought, well, why don't we try our own instrument fund? And as a result, we've procured a number of instruments that sit in this instrument fund. Um, it's based in... Um, Jersey, is it? No, I'm joking. <laughs> but uh, and it's all totally above board because we cannot make a move wrong there, as in we are not permitted to make any wrong moves with valuations because people are investing their money mm. um, and they buy shares in our instrument fund. And, uh, and then a few more philanthropists have come on board. We have this extraordinary... Um, Double bass, we had access to a Medina Viola at one point. We had a Dasala double bass, which is absolutely extraordinary. And uh, so we've just, from all angles, managed to, to access the, um, or pave a way to access these great instruments. And what, what difference does it make to the players having, having these instruments? Because it's more than just... The sound is, is the response, it's the range of colour, isn't it? And so what difference does it make to a performance? Well, I think it's, you know, if you have a small orchestra like ours with only 17 piece, uh, to have a, you know, significant percentage of great instruments in there, it, it really does affect the sound uh, of the orchestra itself. And that there is this, you know, there is a, I may as well use the word more beautiful sound to the orchestra because of the instruments being really special. And it's something that you don't really necessarily think of, you know, until you actually really start going through that there is a strat, there's another strat, there's another, and that's been played. So it really makes a big difference in a, in a group of our size, I'd say. Mm. Sure. I, I often, you know, even though I've been in the business for many years, but I do from time to time myself think, God, this is, this must be nonsense. These instruments can't be worth that much. Mm. And then a great cello comes along. I sit down and I start playing it and I think, okay, now I, I understand. Well, as, and when you compare it with other works of art. Well, as you know, Simon, I mean, you've, you, you've 
you know, had a, a key role in establishing this instrument fund and facilitating the purchase of some of our finest instruments, including, of course, of Caritas. Um, and you know that, you know the rigours we, we go through in order to make what we call objective or at least forensic sort of analysis of the the sound qualities of these instruments. And you've sat there with us doing those blind testings. And I'd say that they are rigorous and scientific, as in we don't test. So what we do is we don't test more than four. So we go A, B, C, D. We have people who, you know, are musicians, violinists sitting in the hall. We don't have too many people. And we just play short excerpts. And we play anywhere from the Sydney Opera House, which is a large hall, about 2,800 people. Oh, my God. I wonder if that's going to ever be used again. <laughs> and, and then we play in a 1,500-seat hall, so halls made for mass gatherings. And then we, of course, play in smaller halls as well. And we go A, B, C, or D. And you don't have to discuss the attributes. You just go, I prefer A, and then D, and then, you know. C or B, whatever. And, you know, you're hoping, we, the poor musicians, we're hoping, sorry to say this, Simon, but we're hoping that, you know, that $20,000 modern violin is going to, you know, pip this straight to the post. But I'm sorry for all of those people out in YouTube land who claim that they've done tests to prove that, a, a you know, Stradivarius, you can't hear the difference. As you know, Simon, we've, you've sat there with, with us and we're going... Yeah. Here we go again. There's the characters <laughs> once again. Yeah, there might be a violin that's louder. There might be a violin that's you know more more powerful, as we say. But you know, it, they keep on passing our tests. And yes, we're more than happy to discuss them with those who allegedly go through those crazy tests um, for you know media release in order to blow up the myth but as you know simon it's exactly the same with wine yeah you can find a great five dollar bottle of wine but i you know let's do the tests you know with great burgundies against some two dollar bottle of plonk from spain let, let you know keep the problem with the test the problem with the test for the violin um is that nobody's arguing that you can get a bad sounding Strad or a really yeah. exceptionally well sounding cheap instrument. Exactly. I mean, they're both those yeah. things are possible, Absolutely. but you have to compare the creme de la creme with the creme de la creme. And the, the tests that they've done, they never say which Strads yeah. they are. They don't say which. No, other no. And they're are. all like wearing, you know, they put, you know, no pegs on your nose. So you don't smell. smell. And, and then they try and do trick tests. Well, of course you can, uh, a great winemaker or, you know, great wine connoisseur like Michael Broadbent, of course you can trip them up. But, you know, yeah. try comparing a Grange, you know, Penfold's Grange Hermitage against a $5 bottle of wine. And, you know, you can trip people up all the time. Um, but the other thing, I, I, I have this um, attitude towards them that they're, you know, overvalued. And, well, compared to the modern art world, you know, where you can get a black doormat with some, you know, strange embossed, gold embossed thing that's meant to be a statement on a, you know, political statement selling for $10 million. 
Yeah, contemporary art. Maybe the violins are actually, you'll like to hear this, um, maybe they're undervalued considering how rare they are. Yeah. I often think that uh, it's extraordinary to me that Stradivari is the most famous craftsman that ever lived. Of all time, in any discipline, right? Yeah. In any discipline. And he made something as esoteric and unusual as a violin. It's kind of uh, extraordinary. Yeah. And it combines so many things. That's the amazing thing, you know, of, you know, and and I love this story of when uh, Oystra was asked, so how much is your violin worth? And he said to the man on the street, it's worth nothing. But to me, it's worth, you know, worth all my life or something, something like that. And that's really how it is, you know, when you get something really, really good, you do have to scratch a little bit on the surface and and you see how many layers there are of uh, that 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 this object actually gives you you know with the combination of it only um being an old beautifully preserved perfectly made object of beautiful timber but also you had then the whole spiritual level to it that you need and this knowledge that goes into the person and you've got to look at who, who buys these instruments who sets the price and it's not set by a regulated market. You know, if it were only governments, uh, I'm sure it'd be a, a different game. But so when the Caritas was bought, um, this tweet of a person who worked for the Australia Council wrote this really disparaging letter about what an insane waste of money. And I rang her up and I said, well, I'm not sure exactly what your criticism is about. So do you think it's overvalued, in which case do you have a good sense of where it sits in commercial? No. I said, okay, well, then you just think that people shouldn't pay money for a violin. Well, not that much. And I said, so you think it's overvalued, um, even though you have no idea what the intrinsic value of the fine instrument is. I said, okay, well, well, so you just think that people shouldn't buy violins? No, people should. Okay, but it's overvalued. So they've spent too much money. So it was, you know, around about the $6 million mark at the time. I said, well, did did you write a disparaging article about, you know, Kerry Packer, who is a, um, an oligarch, Australian oligarch, who lost the equivalent of more than at the time, four Stradivarius in one night gambling. <laughs> and... Yeah. So it's just people have a you know allergic reaction to it because of course you could do a great deal if you put ten million dollars into the arts community. I don't I don't dispute that for one second. But it's not like if people stopped buying these instruments that they would put the money into you know community arts projects. Yeah. So it's not an either or. What they call false equivalency. Well, thanks so much. I, I just have to leave it with just asking one question, which is, um, of course, we've all our thoughts are always with the people that have lost loved ones, and mm. and we just want this thing to end yeah. with the least possible suffering as possible. But but um, for you guys, what's going to be the first thing that you do when this is over, if 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 it ever is uh, over, um, is it going to be to travel somewhere or? or um, no, see friends. Look, I, I rather suspect that what's going to happen here is that it'll be a slow, like anywhere, really. 
you know, loosening of, of restrictions. But one thing that we're not going to see for a while in Australian soil, because we are doing so well, is that we probably won't be able to travel further than New Zealand, which kind of suits us in we a way. We can travel but, if we sorry. go through the quarantine. <laughs> yeah. So but every no, I mean, time you come back, orchestra, you have to... We're not going to, yeah. you know, with an orchestra, we're not going to be two weeks in quarantine. And then, mm. yeah. So, the look, the first thing that we're going to do is get the orchestra together once we're allowed to and then we make sure that we pass all the safety and legal tests and start making a, a, um, a proper broad, broadcast in order to keep the audiences on board. If anyone has any good ideas how we can monetize our situations around the world, <laughs> right in. But that's our biggest dilemma. We, as performing artists, especially actors in theatres, that's almost impossible because you're up against Netflix TV dramas written by geniuses such as Vince Gilligan, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. I mean, at least we can put on concerts that, um, you know, continue to an extent to, um, to, to be received enthusiastically, but it just at the moment takes so much effort. Um, but anyway, that's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to get in, into our studio and broad, broadcast a concert. But if, but when this whole thing ends, well, we're hoping to be being touring around Australia again. Obviously, that is what we'd like to do. Mm. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see you guys again and to hear the hear the orchestra and hear you performing. Thank you so much to um, Richard Tonietti and Satu Vatska, and um, see you soon. I hope. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Jonathan Moulds, philanthropist, eminent banker and violin collector, as well as my colleague Stephen Smith, who's joint managing director of JNA Beer along with myself. We will discuss the benefits of owning instruments that can be lent to deserving musicians, as well as the investment potential of violins, violas and cellos. This podcast is brought to you by J&A Beer and the Beers International Violin Society. If you would like more information, please visit beers.com.